There we go. Good morning. Nice to see everyone. Um, wow, I've said so many times that uh, when you're um, when you're feeling well, it's easy to take our good health and strength for granted. I know I have, and uh, I've appreciated everyone's prayers. I've appreciated uh, Brother Ron and Brother Alex preaching for me the last two weeks. Um, technically, I could have. I could have been here last Sunday. It was um, day 10 for me last Sunday, but I still didn't, didn't have a voice. So uh, I appreciated Ron preaching for me. Today's day 17, and is, I'm, I feel normal, as normal as I ever am, I'll say that. And uh, I'm really grateful for everybody else in the body who is feeling better. Um, God has been with us, like Brother Adam prayed. God has been strengthening us and healing us and protecting us. Um, I would ask for prayer for my dad. My dad got sick, and uh, he's not doing very well. He was hospitalized for four or five days. Uh, brought him home from the hospital last Thursday and just not doing well. So just uh, please pray for my dad. <clears throat> anyway, I, I could say a lot more. Um, I won't except to say that, uh, see if I ever preach on a COVID-related subject again. <laughs> anyway, we are back in the book of Romans. It's, it has been a while. Um, the last, well, actually, the last time we were in Romans, we, we looked at Romans chapter 14 in terms of uh, liberty of conscience. Um, but our, our normal studies through the book of Romans has us in the second half of Romans chapter 7. And so since it's been a while, let me just re refresh your memory. In uh, the first five chapters of the book of Romans, Paul lays out the doctrine of justification by, by faith alone. And um, I'll take advantage of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Question 33, what is justification? And the answer is, justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. That's really Paul's burden through the first five chapters of the book of Romans. And then we came to Romans chapter 6, where Paul begins to um, develop the subject of sanctification. And so, once again, appealing to the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 35, what is sanctification? And the answer is, sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. That's sanctification. Justification and sanctification are, are different, and yet they're connected because they occur in the same people. If you're justified, you are also being sanctified. And if you're being sanctified, God has already justified you from the moment of your uh, conversion. But what Paul develops for us now in the second half of Romans chapter 7 from his own personal experience 
is that the believer's sanctification is never complete this side of glory. So God has begun a good work in us. Uh, God is sanctifying us through faith, but it turns out that that sanctification is always imperfect. It's, it's always a work in progress. And uh, like I mentioned, Paul uses his own testimony, his own life as an illustration. And uh, before we get into the passage proper, let me just quickly point out that the, the passage itself is controversial. Throughout church history and continuing today, there are um, expositors who look at the passage differently. Basically, they, uh, one group of expositors um, doesn't see a break from verse 7 all the way down to verse 25. In other words, this group of expositors looks at Romans 7, verses 7 through 25, and um, they, they view it as Paul's past experience, as somebody grappling with the law. And that includes what we're going to be looking at today. And I don't hold that view um, I believe that there is a clear break in verse that starts in verse 14. In other words, if you look at the, the verb tenses from verse 7 through verse 13, they're all past tense. And then starting in verse 14, all of the verb tenses are, are the present tense. And let me just point that out to you. So for example, in verse 7, what then shall we say that the law is sin by no means, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. And you'll notice that there, when Paul is referring to him, his own experience, it's in the past, and it continues that way all the way through verse 13. Then in verse 14, and we'll see this more clearly as we go through it, there's a sudden break in the verb tenses. So notice verse 14, for example. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am, in the present tense, of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate, and, and so on. Do, do you hear that? Starting in verse 14, all of the verbs are now in the present tense. And um, another thing by way of introduction is that what Paul ends up saying about himself, even though he struggles with sin, clearly, but he ends up uh, describing the new birth in himself. He ends up describing what it's like to have a new heart and to love the law of God. And that's true only for a believer. So even though a believer struggles with sin, there is this new principle within his heart that causes him to love God's law, to love righteousness, to love holiness, and to hate the very sin that he's struggling with. And uh, that's the dynamic that's, that Paul sets before us. It's actually encouraging. 
very encouraging because if someone like the Apostle Paul could struggle with sin, and he did struggle with sin, then who am I to think that I'm above that? And so um, this is normal Christianity, to struggle with sin, to hate yourself at times because of this, this struggle that takes place. And uh, it's uh, normal Christianity to love the law of God and to desire more and more holiness and to be disappointed at how it seems like we're just not making the progress in our Christian life that we should. Well, even the Apostle Paul could, could relate to that. So that's what we're going to be looking at today, verses 14 through 25. Remaining sin in the life of the believer. So the first thing we'll see in verses 14 through 20 is Paul's predicament. Paul's predicament. We've already looked at it a little bit, but notice verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. And in the previous verses, He's already described the holiness of God's law. So back up into verse 12. So the law is holy. This is God's law. And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. There's no two ways about it. God's law is holy. The commandment is holy and righteous and good. And so any fault is not in God's law, any fault lies within us, lies within our hearts. In fact, Paul says, I am of the flesh sold under sin. And it's that description of himself that causes a lot of expositors to stumble because Paul seems to be including himself in um, the description that he gave in Romans chapter 6 of those who are enslaved to sin. So back in Romans chapter 6 and verse 6, for example, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Or in verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Or verse 14, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. And so when Paul says about himself, I am of the flesh sold under sin, you can see why a lot of people struggle with that. But as, as, we're, as we uh, continue to make our way through the passage, um, I believe that Paul will make himself more clear. This is not Paul speaking to us biographically uh, as, as an unbeliever. This is Paul speaking to us as a believer. And what he's saying is that while it's true that the Christian is free from slavery to sin, he's never completely free 
from sin. Sin is always present in our hearts. And because of this ongoing struggle, there is a form of slavery to sin, but certainly not the way it used to be, not as it was before Christ. And so uh, notice how Paul goes on to explain himself in verses 15 and 16. Paul, like all believers, is sold out to sin in the sense that, verses 15 and 16, for I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So here's the struggle. And if you've been a Christian for any length of time at all, it should sound familiar to you. We know the right thing to do. And often, the, the very thing that we want to do, we, we don't do it. And the thing that we hate, that's what we find ourselves doing. And we're in good company, as I mentioned, because that's where the apostle Paul was. But notice that the believer, even though there's this struggle with sin, the believer shows evidence of a new heart in the sense that he desires to do good and he hates sin. So why does the believer still sin then? Notice verse 17. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. And here Paul is not talking about his, his physical existence, his fingers and hands and arms and legs and toes. He's talking about his sinful nature, his, his flesh in terms of his sinful nature. Nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. That's true for every single believer. Sin dwells within me in the form of our sinful nature, in terms of our flesh. And then he goes on to say at the end of verse 18, for I have the desire to do what is right, but the ability to care, but not the ability to carry it out. So again, a believer has the desire to do what is right, to do what is pleasing in God's sight. But we don't have the ability to carry it out sinlessly, to, to carry it out perfectly. We do have a lot of ability because of God's grace. We have the grace of regeneration where we were once dead in our trespasses and sins and God has breathed new life into our souls. We have ability in terms of a new heart. We have great ability because God has written his law on our hearts and, and he's placed his law in our minds. And we have great ability because of the Holy Spirit 
who indwells us. But the emphasis of the passage that's before us today is that in addition to all of that, the grace of God in our salvation, in our conversion, there is sin that remains. There's sin that indwells every single one of us. At the same time that the Holy Spirit indwells us, sin still indwells us. That's the conundrum that we find ourselves in as believers. Verse 19, For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. And so, pick a sin. Maybe filthy language. You know that it's wrong, and whenever you do it, you feel guilty. And when you do it, you go to the Lord and you, you confess it as sin and you ask for fresh grace to help in your time of need. And then some time goes by, maybe a day or a week or two weeks, and then there's another bad situation and then it comes out again. Or maybe it's lustful thoughts and you know that it's wrong Maybe you go to the store and you look where you shouldn't look, or maybe even worse, you, you look at pornography on uh, your electronic devices or whatever, and you feel terrible, and you own it. You confess it as sin. If you're married, you should confess your sin to your spouse too. But you feel terrible about it, and you confess it, to the Lord and you ask for grace to help in your time of need and sure enough, time goes by and another opportunity seems to present itself to your flesh and, and you fall again. The very thing that you hate, you do. Or maybe in your marriage. Maybe you have an argument with your spouse and you're in the middle of the argument and you just know, okay, I should not have let things get this far. And, and you try your best to, to, to stop, to, to pour grace on the fire. And you finally do and you own up to your part of the sin. Paul says in Romans chapter 12, as, as much as depends on you, be at peace with all men. And so there's reconciliation between you and your spouse and you, you confess your sin that led to the argument and maybe your spouse confesses her or his sin and then things are good and then time goes by and then the same kind of situation presents itself and then there you go again, you're saying the same thing. You're putting your, your foot into your mouth. You've, you've fallen into it. And you think, how in the world did I allow myself to get in the same predicament again? I do the very thing I hate and the thing that I don't want to do, that's what I do. And on and on and on and on. There is sin that dwells within us. Verse 20, 
Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Paul repeats this in verses 17 and 20. And he's not saying that he has no responsibility. If it it was up to him, everything would be good. He'd never sin. But there's this ugly entity known as sin, and it's sin's fault, like the devil made me do it. Paul's not saying that. We know he's not saying that because in chapter 8, he's going to go on and warn us in verse 13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So it's not that we're without responsibility. It's not that we're powerless. It's not that there's nothing that we can do about our indwelling sin. But there is one thing that is absolutely true about our remaining sin, and that is we cannot make it go away. As long as we have breath, as long as we have life, As long as we are in this flesh, our sin is going to remain. And it's so sure, and it seems to have a mind of its own, that it's as if there's this separate person living within us. It's not really that way. But that's how much, that's how sure sin is in terms of dwelling within us. The great German reformer, Martin Luther, put it this way. He expressed it in Latin, simul justice et peccator. And that means that the believer is simultaneously righteous and a sinner. Simultaneously righteous, and it's true, We've been justified, we've been pronounced, declared righteous by God, and we have been given a new nature through regeneration. But at the same time, every one of us continues to be a sinner. We're a walking contradiction in a lot of ways as believers simultaneously righteous and a sinner. Am I scratching where you're itching? Does this sound familiar at all to you? Or am I the only one? Next, Paul addresses the war within in verses 21 through 24. Here's his theological point in verse 21. So... I find it to be a law. And this is ironic because in much of Romans chapter 7, Paul discusses the place of the law, God's law, in the life of the believer. And so with a tone of irony, here's another law. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, Evil lies close at hand. 
That's our sin nature. That is sin that dwells within us. It's never far away. This law means an operating rule, a governing principle, a reality that we can't escape. It's always close at hand. Paul goes on in verse 22 to say, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. And here again is Paul giving evidence of regeneration. This is evidence of the new birth. Because only a saved person delights in the law of God in the inner self. That is, in your heart of hearts, within the core of your being. And we know that only a believer delights in the law of God in the inner being because of what Paul is going to say in chapter 8 and verses 7 and 8. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. This is a description of the unconverted mind. This is a description of um, the spiritual state of every single one of us as we're naturally born into this world until God saves us by his grace. And such a person with such a mind that is hostile to God, unable to submit to God's law, this person does not delight in the law of God in the inner being. And so let that be an encouragement to you. So even though you struggle, even though you do the things you know you're not supposed to do and you don't do the things you know you're supposed to do, still, deep in your heart, in the core of your being, you know that you delight in the law of God. You wish that you didn't sin. You pray that you could be free of indwelling sin, but alas, evil lies close at hand. But still, the fact that you delight in the law of God in your heart is evidence of God's grace at work in you. Verse 23. But I see in my members, and again, it's not just his physical body, but sin that indwells us has hijacked our bodies and often works through our bodies. It uses our members for sinful purposes. But I see in my members another law, so not the law of God, but this other law that evil lies close at hand, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. So now Paul begins to use this imagery of war. 
There's a war going on. We know that there's a war going on within our country. A lot of us think that there's an undeclared civil war already raging. There's a culture war going on. There seems to be a war going on around the world between the Frankly, the forces of liberty and the forces of totalitarianism. And there are actual armed wars going on in different parts of the country and uh, the world. In fact, the world seems to always be at war. But the Bible says there's a war that's much more personal, much more profound much more consequential in our lives than any other war that we might discuss. And it is this war that is being waged within us. This war between our sin, our remaining sin, our sinful nature, and the law of our minds. And remember that with our minds, we love the law of God. We would love to be more holy. We would love to be sinless. But notice what Paul says at the end of verse 23 in terms of the the goal of this warfare. What is the objective of our enemy, our enemy within. What is sin trying to accomplish? He says, and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. This explains verse 14. I am of the flesh sold under sin. Romans chapter 6, if you're a believer, you are no longer a slave to sin. But in Romans chapter 7, sin remains. There's an enemy within you. And the goal of your remaining sin is to bring you back into its, its captivity again. The goal of our remaining sin is to bring us into bondage to sin once again. That's really important for us to remember that. Our enemy within does not just want to harass us. It doesn't just want to upset us. It doesn't just want to put a stumbling block in front of us. No. Our remaining sin will not be satisfied unless we are in its bondage once again and on the broad road, the broad way that leads to destruction. That's why we have to take our sins seriously. On the one hand, we will never be free from it, But on the other hand, we can never be complacent about it because sin wants to destroy us. 
Sin is actively trying to destroy us. It is constantly trying to make us captive to the law of sin that dwells within us. There's no truce. There's no treaty. There's no peace between us and our remaining sin. Paul put it this way in Galatians 5 and verse 17. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Galatians 5.17. And so what's Paul's reaction? Here he is, this walking contradiction. Here he is, this soul in turmoil. Here he is, this man preaching the gospel and making disciples and being used by God in an incredible way to grow God's kingdom. And he, it, he has this internal struggle with sin that will not go away. Well, listen to his Reaction in verse 24. Wretched man that I am. Sinful, evil, despicable me. That's basically what Paul is saying. And it helps us to understand, doesn't it, what Paul says in 1 Timothy 1 and verse 15 when he said this is a uh, faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief or foremost. There in 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul is not exclusively thinking of his past. He's thinking of his ongoing Christian experience. I am the chief of sinners. Paul says, I am the foremost sinner. This conflict that I'm writing about is not something that's taking, out, taking place out there somewhere. It's not just taking place within the hearts of other people. It takes place, it is raging within my own heart, wretched man that I am. And then notice Paul's ultimate desire. Who will deliver me from this body of death? And it's not his physical body that's the problem. It's his remaining sin that expresses itself through his body. But Paul knows that as long as he is in this fallen body, dwelling within this fallen world where sin is out there, but sin is also in here, he is constantly looking forward to and praying for ultimate deliverance. And it's that deliverance that he's going to end up speaking about in Romans chapter 8 when he says... Um, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. 
For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And what do we say when we grow, groan inwardly? Who will deliver me from this body of death? That's what every believer is looking forward to. A genuine Christian is not satisfied with the degree of practical holiness that we experience in this life. We are not satisfied with our remaining sin. We're not satisfied with doing the things that we hate and not doing the things that we love. We want to be delivered from that. Jerry Bridges put it this way in his book, The Pursuit of Holiness. Indwelling sin remains in us even though it has been dethroned, Romans chapter 6. And though it has been overthrown and weakened, its nature has not changed. Sin is still hostile to God and cannot submit to his law. Thus, we have an implacable enemy of righteousness right in our own hearts. What diligence and watchfulness is required of us when this enemy in our souls is ready to oppose every effort to do good? Jerry Bridges. All right. Finally, Paul goes on to tell us about his hope. Paul's hope, verse 25. He just asked the question, who will deliver me from this body of death? Who will free me from my remaining corruption? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. There's Paul's hope. That's your hope. That's my hope. We have absolutely no hope in and of ourselves. We didn't save ourselves to begin with, and we cannot deliver ourselves from our remaining sin as well. If there is any hope for us, it's always from the same source the God of all grace. Amen. The Lord Jesus Christ, who the Apostle Paul says, loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus Christ died for our sins to remove our guilt. But he also died for our sins to remove its dominating, controlling power from our lives. Jesus was delivered up for our transgressions and he was raised again for our justification. And Jesus was raised bodily into heaven where he is now enthroned at the right hand of the majesty on high 
And from there, he's ruling and reigning until his enemies are made his footstool. And from that exalted position, Jesus Christ has sent the Holy Spirit, his representative, to represent him within our hearts. And that's why any hope we have of past deliverance, present deliverance, or future deliverance is all through Jesus Christ, our Lord, with no exceptions. This is why legalism is so bankrupt and a lie. Because legalism at its root, whether it's adding to God's law or overemphasizing our ability to keep God's law, legalism is an overemphasis on God's law. And it's a charade. It's a lie because, as Paul already told us, there's nothing good that dwells in me that is in my flesh. And so it doesn't matter how long the list of do's and don'ts, it doesn't matter how many hoops we coax people to jump through, it will accomplish precisely, absolutely nothing. It is of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Our hope comes from heaven. Our hope comes from Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thanks be to God. Then he finally wraps things up with this synopsis. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind. This is what he's been saying. And, And remember that While there is this war that wages within him, there is this conflict that is occurring. There is this contradiction taking place. Yet, there is the constancy of Paul saying, I myself serve the law of God with my mind. But at the same time, but with my flesh... I serve the law of sin. This is the Christian experience. It's not very clean. It's not very attractive all of the time. It's humiliating, in fact. We wish it wasn't so. We all look forward to and hasten the day when we're going to be free from our remaining corruption. But in the meantime, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 57. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me just conclude with uh, the words of commentator William Hendrickson. He asks this question. Do you recognize yourself in Paul's words? If you do, then will you not also be able to say 
wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So Hendrickson concludes, those who can say that are surely Christians. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the honesty, the realism of your word. We thank you that when the Holy Spirit moved the Apostle Paul to write these words in the book of Romans, he did not move him to cover up his struggle against sin. We thank you, Lord, that Jesus Christ is our gracious Savior, our merciful High Priest from the beginning of our salvation all the way through to the end. Would you help us, Lord, to put no confidence in the flesh? Would you help us to be constantly looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith? Would you help us, Lord, to be honest with one another, to not put on an act, to not put on a show as though we're holier than anybody else in and of ourselves. But Lord, help us to make much of the grace of the gospel and especially help us to make much of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray, amen.